It came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Of the two groups on the go at this stage, the Pharisees who bound up with the scribes and the teachers of the law are those who are the teachers of the people, who know the scriptures and interpret them to the people, who deal with a lot of the day-to-day things, people who are not wholly comfortable with the Roman occupation and things that are going on there, but deal with their people day by day. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are those of a little bit higher class. They're of the priestly group. And those who are concerned first and foremost with what goes on within worship in the temple and the dealings with the temple. And while they despise the Romans on one hand, they do whatever they need to do to get along with them. And they're comfortable in a lot of compromise accordingly. I think in a lot of ways there's a clear separation of kind of the the secular world and their religious duties. They hold only to the Pentateuch. Or I'm speaking in a present tense, kind of that line of the Sadducees disappears after you get the end of the the temple's destruction in 70 A.D., They're sometimes referred to as being kind of uh, fundamentalists regarding the law. They hold only to the first five books of Moses. I use the word fundamentalist, and I use it a little bit advisedly because it doesn't have to be a pejorative term. I mean, frankly, I like to think of myself in many ways as a fundamentalist. I'm concerned with the fundamentals of the gospel. I take seriously every word of Scripture, And if some of you haven't heard me say it before, I really believe that most of us as Christians need to learn to take the Bible more literally, not less. But to take it literally doesn't mean just the surface meaning of words, but to take every word seriously to learn to read in context. When we deal with the Sadducees, there isn't a strong sense of that. They like things to be black and white. They want simply what the rule says. There's not a lot of movement beyond that. I always remember back in my undergraduate degree, a course in Judaism, the rabbi who taught it suggested that the Sadducees died out, not simply because the temple was gone, but he said they spent all their Sabbaths sitting in the cold and the dark and developed hemorrhoids and died of their misery. Well, Those who relate simply to the law, and the line that we often miss is the importance of the relation then to the law giver as well. Not simply to what the rules say, but what's in the heart of God. If we spend time, as we regularly do with the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus opens up the heart of the law, he reminds us that the spirit of the law means not just taking the gist of what the rules say, but actually entering into what's the will of the Father, what's in the heart of the Father. Sadducees come with a question. We often get those who come with questions to Jesus where I've commented before, they have ulterior motives when they come. They're coming to test him. They're trying to justify themselves. They're they're coming for some reason other than to know 
the answer, to get the right answer, to get wisdom from Jesus. You keep in mind that the Sadducees, when they come with their question, how could they care about whose wife this woman is in the resurrection since they think the whole idea of resurrection is ridiculous? They don't care what the right answer is. They think they've got a means of tripping them up. And when Jesus is confronted it that way, he always knows what they're up to, and he never plays along. Often he throws something back at those who are questioning him, turns things on their heads. We all remember the question of, who is my neighbor? Whom do I have to love? That comes from that teacher of the law, where there's the question of the fundamental commandments, the two on which hang the whole of the law, the love of God, the love of neighbor is yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? It's a man trying to justify himself. And on that occasion, Jesus, in throwing it back, says, well, you can't get there from here. As long as you are asking that question, you will never get to the heart of God's law. You will never get to what the commandment is all about. As long as you're looking for whom you have to love, you've missed the spirit of all of God's commandments. Let me tell you a story, and on he goes with the the Good Samaritan, at the end of which the whole question is turned around, not who's my neighbor, whom do I have to love, but what does it mean to be a neighbor? And the sense that if you can answer that question, the first one becomes moot. You don't need to go back there. Well, likewise... With the Sadducees on this occasion, Jesus says to them, you can't get there from here. Where you're arguing, you will never get what you're looking for. On the one hand, you're asking a question about the things of heaven, but you're looking from the earthly perspective and you cannot possibly comprehend. The college I've taught for the last 20 years Part of the fundamental program in the early days was the history of mathematics, and I I think they've always wanted it to be part of the program, but you have to have the right kind of teacher. Well, in with things of mathematics, you get some of the science that is there, and as you move into things of of quantum physics and um, quantum theory and all, there's always been the sense that students are looking for sort of the crash course in things, but... They can't really understand just the basic things that would be said unless there's a whole load of groundwork that is done first. You have to actually be able to understand certain concepts to make any sense of what's said. How do we enter into the things of heaven? How can you ask what heaven is like and where marriage fits into heaven? It's not less than it is here because nothing is less in heaven. There's a fullness. Marriage has to do with the icon here in our flesh of the divine love at work, of God pouring himself out even within the heart of the Trinity. There's to be some glimpse of that, ideally a greater vision of it in marriage as we grow in the marriage relationship. But it's a glimpse. But then you see face to face. Then you see the fullness. Then you enter into the fullness of what this is all about. I was thinking at 8 o'clock, somebody could ask the question of, well, well, what color is a thing in heaven? You know, what color are lilies in heaven? And how do you describe 
when there are colors that we don't know here. And if you want a glimpse of that, go into the paint store and ask for white. I just want to paint the walls white. And then they start talking about, yes, but which white do you want? And it runs from eggshell through to snowdrop or, sorry, there's so many possibilities. And you think you've got it because you looked at one palette from one paint maker, but then you go to another store and it's somebody else and you've got all these other names. And they're all different on some level. Well, if your brain can see the differences, sometimes when they're side by side, I wear black. Surely black is just black, but not all my black shirts are the same and black lined up against black isn't always the same. In heaven, colors that we don't We've never experienced that we don't imagine a fullness. I'm young enough to remember when my dad came home with the first color TV hockey game. We watched that night and it was just this whole different world of watching even a hockey game to see the colors along the strip of the board. Anyway, all of this is just to say that Jesus in response to the Sadducees, the first thing is you have no idea what you're talking about. You want to make an argument from the earth about the things of heaven, you're not even in the ballpark. But then he says, not the marriage question, but let's go back just to the basics of resurrection. He goes back into the scripture. He doesn't go back to Second Maccabees or to, to Job or the Psalms or the prophets, books that they don't recognize. He doesn't start that argument. He goes right to one of the most significant texts in the whole of Scripture. But there in the heart of the Pentateuch, Exodus 3, where God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. What does he say there? You think that everything ends in this life? You think that there's nothing beyond this? How have you ever approached God? God who reveals himself as the one who really is. And when he talks about the patriarchs, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They are alive in him. I mentioned the kind of fundamentalist approach and the reading of things. Well, We can read scripture wholly, literally, take seriously the words that are there, but we're expected to read in the context of the wider books, the wider scripture, in the context of the living faith that is there, most particularly, though, in the context of the living God. We are not given an ancient text that was bequeathed to us of those long, long ago where we sit and we look at the book and say, How do we unravel this? We're given the word that comes to us with the living word. That comes to us as that lively word of God. The Lord gives us his spirit. He invites us not just to a text on a page, but to the living God. Who comes to meet us again, even within the heart of this mass. Who who comes to be really and truly present with us to be the living word, to be the Eucharist. The Sadducees are bound up in a world that in a lot of ways is not far different from the pagans. They're doing the right things of God, but they are relating only to those rules, to those 
words. They're going through the rituals. I don't mean to write off every Sadducee who was. We know that some of them came to Jesus, surely. Some of them heard what he was preaching and their hearts burned like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. But their world was closed off. If this world is all there is, we're back in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're back in a world in which all that really matters is what gets us ahead in this world, maybe integrity before God, but there's nothing lasting, there's no eternal entrustment that we can make looking ahead to the glory that is with him. And one of the things that it often means is that we compromise with the things of the world. Why would we suffer here? Why would we suffer for the things of God when this is the end of it? To have some integrity before him, but there's no investment in the eternal. On the other side of things, we have seven brothers. In the time of the Maccabees, back in the time when the Seleucids had swept in and under Antiochus IV, there's a rather severe oppression and persecution going on in in Judea. Seven brothers, we're not told a lot about them. They might well have been of priestly line themselves. The chapter before, we hear of an older man, Eleazar, who likewise, at the end of his life, gives a testimony, gives a witness, though he suffers for it. But seven brothers, set against the seven brothers in the Sadducees story. But these are seven brothers who know that they have life in the Lord. It's before the coming of Jesus. They don't know the certainty of the way that has been opened in Christ, but they believe that in God is life and a life that is stronger than death. We have a passage that skips about, and it's quite a grotesque part of 2 Maccabees. I just want to give you a glimpse. I don't want to go in great detail, but we're dealing with the brothers, the first of them who speaks up and says, we're being asked to profane ourselves. We're being asked to dishonor God. Know that we're not going to do that that it doesn't matter what you do to us, we entrust ourselves to the living God and we're confident in Him. He's the spokesman, the first of the brothers. They cut out His tongue. They remove the scalp from His head. They cut off His hands and His feet. They roast Him alive. All of that before His mother and the other brothers. The mother, God love her, exhorts her sons to be faithful, to stand faithful to God to the end. And each of them in turn, when we get to that second brother who gives his testimony, we are told in the text that he's already been scalped. And yet he responds as he does. This whole business of the sticking out of the tongue is not just the mockery of sticking out the tongue at the accusers. It's the brother who says, go ahead, take it. Take my hands. Take all of me. These have come from God I trust that he will return them to me in glory. But know that we're not serving you. The three friends of Daniel who went into the fiery furnace. A hope in a resurrection, not the confidence, not the security that we have in Jesus Christ of knowing the one who is the life, 
who is the truth, who is the way, and yet, knowing that God is the living God, knowing that the heart of the law is to know the Lord and to trust in Him. Go through the Psalms. You find that the greatest fear in the Psalms is not death for its own sake, but being separated from God. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid so much of what God will do to them, but being afraid of that which would separate them from Him. Even when there seems to be no hope, not that confident word that comes in Christ, and yet, in God is life and we hold fast to the one who is life. For the Sadducees, you've got the sense of a dry word, a dry law. You go through the regulations, you do your bit. Psalm 19, and the wonderful glorying in the commandments of God, in the gift of God, of the word that he pours out, knowing that to be in that living relationship with him is to have life, to have confidence that death does not have the last word, does not have the final power. I think about all of that, especially when I look back over the last two and three years. And the question that we all ought to be asking ourselves as we move on from all of that, as we deal with the fears that have been in the world around us, you know, what do we hold fast to? Where is our hope? Where is our confidence? Are we those who, like the Sadducees, found themselves because of their fear of things in the world and their desire to hold on to the things that they had in this life would make whatever compromises. Those in the time of the Maccabees who did succumb to the overlords who would have them not just roll over into their culture, but hide the signs of their distinctiveness, eat the forbidden foods, compromise their faith, sacrifice the very heart of who they are. Because, you know, after that revelation at the burning bush, God went on to say to Moses, you go and tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn. And as he led Israel out, he was teaching them what it is to live, not as slaves of the great master, not as servants of the great king, but as sons and daughters of the living God. To be renewed in his likeness. Well, there's the promise of God in Christ. A new birth a new birth of God where we know that we are His own. We're not children first of this world. Yes, we live in this world. Yes, we grow up in this world. Yes, we have bodies in this world, but all the things we have will pass away. We will be made new in Christ. Our hope is not in the things of this world, but in Him. Our fear is not to be of those in this world, but of God himself, but fear primarily of being separated from him. What does it mean to be in him? What is it to hold fast to that above all things? The martyrs bear witness throughout the ages. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ.